before the Lord's table this morning. Praise God. Praise God this morning. Thank you, team, for that lovely time of worship and praise. Do you know, we're here this morning and we're here in the presence of our God. You know, the Bible says where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. And he is here this morning. And that's an amazing thing to realize the God of glory, the God of heaven is here in our midst. I want to ask a couple of wee questions this morning. You're here and I'm here. How hard was it for you and I to get here this morning? How difficult was it? Maybe you woke up this morning and after you come around a wee bit, you thought, praise the Lord, it's Sunday morning, down the living hope, we're going to praise God, we're going to worship God. And you're feeling on the mountaintop and you, th you thought it was wonderful to be here. But maybe something's, in something's happening maybe in your life and maybe you just don't feel like that. And maybe you, think you're, you, thought, maybe you thought to yourself, you know, it's a struggle. It's a real struggle, but I'm going to go down to church this morning, regardless of circumstances, regardless of what has happened. I'm going to go down and I'm going to sit and listen and praise God and listen to what the Lord has to say. You know, we all go through different, different times like that. How hard was it for you and I to be here this morning? 
That's the first question. Second question, how hard was it for our Lord Jesus Christ to be here this morning? He is here. He is here by the power of the Holy Spirit. How hard was it for our God, our Lord Jesus Christ, to come to church this morning? How hard was it to do what he had to do that you and I might partake of the bread and wine? First of all, it meant he had to be separated from an intimate relationship with his Father in glory. From eternity past, the eons of eternity past, our Lord Jesus was in heaven, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But our Lord Jesus had to leave the glory of heaven and come down to this earth. Of course, when he left the glory of heaven, what did he leave behind? He left behind the glory that he had from eternity, the wonderful, black, the wonderful, amazing glory that he had with God. He had to veil that in human flesh. He had to come down to, uh, to this earth and, and fulfill all the Old Testament prophecies regarding himself. His birth, fleeing into Egypt, being raised in Nazareth. He had to be born a human the God of glory, the one whose words who spoke, words spoke uh, in the existence of this universe. He had to come and be veiled in human flesh to be born as a baby. And we see our lovely wee babies in the church this morning. You know, the baby, a baby is useless for itself, can do nothing of itself. And our Lord had to leave the glory of heaven, come and be born as a human baby. He had to give up the things that we considered as human rights. Justice, mercy, forgiveness. He had none of these. They were denied him. He had to give up his own will completely. Do you remember he sat in the, or he lay in the Garden of Eden or the Garden of Gethsemane and prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He, he sweated great, great drops of blood. But he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He had to give up his will. He had to live with no permanent address over his, a roof over his head, living off the support of others, no stability, as we would say. Luke 9, 58 says, And Jesus said to him, Foxes of holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He had nothing. He had to live without a family, without a wife or children. He had to be sinless. He had to live in, in the filth, of, of this and destructive habits of this world and remain sinless. He had to live knowing that he would die, knowing the death that he would suffer, knowing it had to be a specific time at the time of Passover to fulfill scripture. He knew that he would be crucified. John 3, 14 to 15. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him, he knew the way was going to die. He had to overcome death. He had to defeat the devil. He had to rise from the dead, and he had to send the Holy Spirit into the world. He had to leave his friends behind him, those who followed him for three and a half years. He had to leave them behind, knowing that most of them would also be killed for their faith. And above all of this, he had to love and forgive all of his, enem his enemies. Jesus hung on the cross. And what did he say? For Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He forgave the ones who crucified him. He had to do all this that he might be here this morning and that you and I might be here. What a great friend he is, our brother, our savior, our redeemer, our high priest, our God, and our lovely Lord Jesus Christ. That's how hard it was for the Lord to come to this earth. That's how hard it was for God. You might say he was God. It couldn't have been hard, but he did. He suffered. He died. He went to the cross. and He went through all of these things so that you and I might be here today. So hard was it, how hard was it for you and I to be here? Thank God we're here. Thank God, no matter how difficult it might have been, you broke through the difficulty and you're here this morning. And thank God he is with you. And he is here to minister to you through the, the bread and the wine, to bless you. He's here to minister through the word of God. And now we turn to the word of God. 1 Corinthians 11. And we remember the table. 
what it cost our Lord Jesus Christ that you and I might have this table. 1 Corinthians 11:23. For I have received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Maybe we can remember the Lord this morning. Maybe a wee bit clearer when we've seen what it cost him that we might be here this morning. Praise God. You'll see your wee pod, your wee cup here this morning. You, put, you pull across the first layer and we, we have the bread. We're just going to give thanks for the bread now and we're going to give thanks for what the Lord has done. And we invite you, if you know and love the Lord, to partake of the bread this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your, your cup that represents your, your bread, the, 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 the body that was broken, the body that was uh, marred more than any man. And Lord, today we remember what you've done and we thank and praise you for what you've done. We give you all the praise and glory. Bless this, this bread as we partake of it in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God. Hallelujah. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. Not cup after the supper, they were, they were um, celebrating the Passover meal. And this cup would have been the third cup of the Passover. That was the cup of redemption. And Jesus took the cup of redemption. And he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes oh he's coming back soon friends he's coming back soon father we thank you for this cup we thank you for this um little cup of juice the juice that represents the precious shed blood of our lord jesus christ we thank you this morning that we are not saved with the blood of bulls or goats but with the precious shed blood of our lord jesus christ and Lord, we thank you so much for this cup. We pray as we partake of it that we would be drawn closer to you and closer together as your church. Bless this cup to each and every one of us in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you for this lovely time around the table. We pray as we continue in, in your, your service that you will bless your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, let's stand and worship together.
Yeah, all the kids have youth are back on, and they'll only be on for six weeks, and then um, the week after that is Christmas. So, yeah, send your kids, send your young people, and we would love to see all them at Kids Church and at youth. Uh, next Sunday evening, we'll have something special planned. Uh, Lisa Osborne is going to be sharing her testimony, her story, next Sunday night. And so we really encourage you to come along and invite your family, invite your friends as well. Lisa has a powerful story, and she tells it in such a relatable way for anybody um, that has heard it. It really, it, it's, it's really fantastic what God has done in her life. And um, we, we really do encourage you not only to come to that, but to bring somebody with you. Um, it's going to be such a powerful night next Sunday evening. And our prayer, our prayer team begins today. So what that looks like is after the morning service or the evening service, if you have anything that you would like prayer for specifically, if you want somebody um, just to, to talk with and to pray with you, then we're going to have our prayer team available. And they're gonna, that's going to happen in the kids' space room, isn't it, where the kids' space normally is. So, um, But they're going to be wearing little lanyards anyway. So as you go out of church, you'll see them with their lanyards on. Um, so if you would like prayer, then we encourage you to please make use of that and that begins uh, from from now from this service so after this service they're going to be available church i'm going to invite pastor matt who's going to come and bring the word thank you everybody good morning thank you for being here i have my christmas tree up in the roof space where it belongs <laughs> because it's November, okay? Thank you. Jackie, I woke up this morning, rolled over, said to Athena, I don't want to go to church today. She says, you have to go, you're the pastor. Uh, so it's good we're all here today. We are in the book of Matthew. We are working our way through uh, the gospel of Matthew as part of the vision of the church. Uh, for these next uh, three years. We are, don't know if we'll spend three years in Matthew, but we're certainly going to go as far as we can. Uh, and that, but uh, so much to teach us. And Pastor Reese died last Sunday with uh, the Beatitudes there, at the beginning of the Sermon of the Mount. And he's going to be doing those three sermons there. I'm jumping just a little bit ahead in Matthew 5, because uh, uh, Rebecca Hughes is going to speak one of the sermons as well on the salt and light. And Jesus is continuing on with his Sermon on the Mount. He's preached the Beatitudes, as I said, and now he's come. Uh, and he's going to talk about the law now, how he is the fulfillment of the law. Uh, we have to understand that the people sitting there listening to Jesus' sermon have always been led by a group of people, the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the religious teachers of the day. They were the people, what they said is what you did. They were the spiritual leaders of the people, so they, uh, they, they shared the laws, they, they told them what they needed to do to keep the laws and stuff, and all the people had known is, is these Pharisees. And so Jesus begins not only to address just the people that are sitting there uh, on the mountain listening to the sermon, but also the teachers of the law. And as he moves through the sermon, uh, he, he, he repeats six phrases. He says this, you, you will have heard this, he said, you have heard it said, and he applies it to one of the commandments and then explains it because he's trying to help the people to understand as they move from the law uh, to the new covenant that this is not just about the physical obedience of the law that will get you into heaven, that, that's not going to happen, it's actually the attitude of the heart. And so Jesus begins to open up an explanation of why, uh, of, of, of what the law means. That, that simply he's not come to abolish the law, but he's come to fulfill the law. But he's in a sense come to, to, come to take it away, to fulfill it, to bring it to a culmination in a sense, as it says in Romans. So we're going to read the words here, just only uh, four verses. And I've actually split it into two because there were two parts. Uh, I think now, I, I, don't, I don't want to rush through this. Because I think it has something to say to us all. So in verse 17 it says, Do not think that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. 
Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will be by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus begins this talk here, this continues on with this sermon here, and there's splitting it into two, which helps us to understand what Jesus is trying to say. Because that first bit there about abolishing the law of the prophets, what does he mean by that? Now we have to understand that the people at this time didn't call the Old Testament the Old Testament. They called it the law of the prophets, which included the beginning of the books of the Old Testament and stuff. And so Jesus is coming and saying, it's not my intention to abolish this Old Testament revelation, but to see it fulfilled both in the life, the death, and the resurrection of who he is and what he's come to do, but then also his followers as well. So he begins this long discussion of the law and wants to make it clear that he doesn't oppose what God has given Israel and what we call the Old Testament. He hasn't come to destroy what's happened, but he's come to free it in the way that the Pharisees and the scribes had interpreted it. If you remember way back at the beginning of this in September, we preached on the verse of coming to me all you who are weary and heavy laden. And we've always applied that and read that as all the sin and the baggage that we have in our life that we're bringing it to Jesus. But the interpretation of it as well it was the burden that the religious teachers, the Pharisees and the scribes were putting on the people to keep the rules, to keep the laws. And, and it was just impossible to keep them. There were 613 commandments alone written in the Old Testament in the beginning there of the books of the law. The Pharisees and the scribes added more onto that and more on that it just simply became impossible. Possible uh, to keep it. Now, well meaning Christians will use verse 17 of what Jesus is saying of not coming to abolish the law as the reason that Christians must remain under some sort of the law, but we must understand that's completely out of context and completely misinterpreted. If you're ever going to build an argument in Scripture, you mustn't ever build it for one verse. You must build it from all the verses and speak about the same subject. And we'll see later on as we look at some of the verses that Jesus uh, speaks and Paul says as the Bible uh, brings this together. It helps us understand what we're supposed to do because there's lots of people sometimes throw up arguments simply like this about whether Christians should get tattoos. Ooh, you know what I mean? Whether they get tattoos or that. But listen, if Christians aren't allowed to get tattoos, and listen, I don't care whether people get tattoos or not, you mustn't eat shellfish either. See, your prawn cocktail you're getting for lunch, you can't eat it. Because in the same passage, it says the same thing. And often it's a misinterpretation of what the Old Testament says that we try and apply to the new covenant, to the new way. Oh, we must keep all the laws. Well, if you want to keep all the laws, you have to keep all of the laws, not just some of the laws. And so here Jesus is coming and, and, and he's trying to help the people understand. Jesus says this in Matthew 7 to help us. He says, so in everything to do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. And Jesus later on in Matthew asks what's the most important commandment. He says, love God. And the second one is just like that, love others. You know, and in a sense, he said that sums up the, the, the law, it sums up the commandments. And he says that here in Hebrews, which helps us understand this, it says, the law is only a shadow of the good things. That back projector is flicking out. The, the back projector's. Sorry? Okay. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never be the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. So it says here even, it's a shadow of the good things that are coming. The good things that are coming, it was Jesus Christ. The good thing, the best thing. The law wasn't there to do what it needed to be. It couldn't do what needed to be done. And so Jesus is standing here and is making it clear that he had the authority apart from the law of Moses, but it wasn't in contradiction to it. So Jesus added nothing to the law except this one thing, because no man could add to the law but except for Jesus. Perfect obedience. 
He kept all the rules. He fulfilled the law by perfect obedience. Nobody uh, could be perfect in obedience to anything. It's like when you go, I remember going to Bible college in 1994, and one of the things you got was a handbook, and it was a rule book of things that you were allowed to do and not allowed to do at Bible college. And it was, I mean, it was that thick. You know, you had to be in your room for a certain time. You had to, you know, head down to study so many. I mean, it just was, well, I mean, I lived on my own in my own flat for five years. I remember reading this thinking, there is no way I'm ever going to be able to keep every rule in this handbook. And after three years of Bible college, I was right. I couldn't. (laughs) Yeah. But as I got it, I made it realise that actually we're presented with rules sometimes and we look at it and say, how do we keep these? It's not the Old Testament law. How is it possible to keep all of these? But in the Old Testament law, the only person who was able to keep it was Jesus. And Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets because we've said that's the key word here in four ways. He brought full revelation to it. The Old Testament makes no sense without the New Testament uh, giving the revelation and the explanation to who Jesus is. We've spoken about this already. He's the chosen Messiah. He was able to obey all the laws. He He took not only the penalty, but the punishment for our sin, which is the clear fulfillment at the end of his life when he goes to the cross. See, the penalty was ours. A football match, you watch a game, somebody commits a foul in the box and the referee blows a whistle and he points to the penalty spot and all the crowd cheers, unless you're an England supporter because you know they're going to miss it. The crowd cheers because a penalty has been given and you know it's an easy, in a sense, an easy opportunity to score the goal. The penalty was given but it was our penalty, it was for us. But the punishment for the penalty was ours as well. And Jesus fulfills it by taking both of them. He says, oh, I'll take the penalty. Because nobody else could do it. I've kept the law perfectly. I I, I tick all the right boxes. I'm the one that can take the penalty for everybody's sin. But I can also take the punishment for it as well. And he fulfills that here. And it's like Paul writes in Romans. He says, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. What it means is simply that it comes to a point of completion. It comes to a point where it's been complete, but it's that second bit that that we'll look at in more detail next time. But it says, so there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. We go back to the Pharisees who thought to themselves, they could be righteous in their own strength by keeping all the laws. You know, we, we could try and be righteous. See if that would get us into heaven. Here Jesus comes and says, there might be righteousness for us all. So it doesn't matter how right I am, how good I am. I says, what matters is me following Christ. What matters to me is giving my life to Christ. That makes me righteous with God for everyone who believes. You see, Jesus moves on. He makes a, another important point here. He says, when, uh, when he says one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Just to give you an explanation of what he was saying, it was the smallest letter and stroke in the Hebrew alphabet, you can simply see there, just uh, if you can see on the right, left, your, your right, my left, and that simply just that stroke is there. And Jesus said, none of this has been removed. None of this has been taken away. But what does he mean by that? Jesus is not only speaking about the ideas of the word. You know, there are lots of people today in, in the culture and the society that we live in that say the Bible is, is good because of the ideas that it brings. The theme that helps us, it's outdated, you know, there's some things, it's not really relevant for our lives anymore. And Jesus sort of turns around and says, actually, nothing's to be removed from this. That actually, it's a scripture because he says, the the jot is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, the tittle is the smallest uh, word, it's a small mark. And Jesus says, whoever breaks one of these commandments... Well, is that everything that the Pharisee says? Is that everything? No, it's not. But I tend to hear what the problem is with the Pharisees. It's this. It says there were commandments given. And what they did to protect the people was that they would put a fence around the commandment. 
and simply to help the people, to protect the people, they would go so over the top with their interpretation of the commandment that to thinking that they were being right and sincere and protecting the people, they thought that would be the way that everybody would achieve righteousness. Let me give you two examples. In 1992, there were tenants in an uh, orthodox neighbourhood in Jerusalem who, who let their apartment burn to the ground simply because using the phone to phone the fire brigade on the Sabbath was considered work that it broke one of the commandments. Observant and orthodox Jews looked at it and said, before we phone the fire brigade, we need to phone the rabbi to decide, is it work to phone the fire brigade? Now we're looking at it saying, that's absurd, that's nuts. You know, but that, that's what they did. You know, that's the whole idea of the Pharisees, the attitude that they would have because they interpret, you know, working on the Sabbath as lifting the phone or, or doing something like that. So not did just one apartment burn down, it said there were three apartment blocks eventually burned down because it took the rabbi half an hour to get back to the people to say, I don't even know if he said phone the fire brigade, but by then it was too late. It says thankfully nobody died, but three apartments burned to the ground because people were thinking they were being so religious in what they're doing this is the attitude of the pharisees i mean the pharisees had all the sincerity in the world they would tithe from the plants in the very garden if they grew mint in the garden they would tithe from that they would fast rigidly you know that they would pray on street corners they were strict observers of the law but other people would look at them and say i couldn't do what they do I mean, there's another example there, and, and, and you've heard that even today when we talk about the kosher food, uh, and the, the, they don't mix the meat with the dairy. This is not a criticism of people, but it's just to show the absurdity of what happens when people read something that God says and keep adding layers and layers and layers onto it. Uh, and so it, it, they won't eat, but even just mix the milk the dairy products and the meat. They're not even allowed to cook with the same utensils. They're, they're, and it comes from a verse in Exodus 23:19 when it says, do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, if any of you were planning to have a young goat for your lunch today, <laughs> do not cook it in its mother's milk. But anyway, they, they read this and then, then they applied these dietary restrictions. They made it into a commandment. And so what happened over a period of thousands of years to expand the commands in the laws to protect the people, they just kept building a fence around this by saying, don't mix the two, don't mix the two, keep them all away from each other. He says, make sure, and it had nothing to do with what Moses had said. It's actually not even forbidden in the commandments because Deuteronomy 4 verse 2 says, do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. And what's happened is they've looked at it and said, we've got to keep this separate because we don't want anybody accidentally to violate the law or the commandments of God. Uh, this is what it's like. So even today, kosher food I mean, if you go to McDonald's in, in Jerusalem, and we're going to Israel, and we will visit McDonald's to prove this. <laughs> Just as a test. I went on to McDonald's in Jerusalem as part of my study for this. Just so you don't think I'm wasting my time in a week. I went on and, and, and tried to, not try to order, because that would be silly, but I went on to say, and it's so true, you cannot buy a, a cheeseburger. Because the cheese and the go together it says it's true so it's, co it's actually separate so if they're selling meat products and dairy products it's separate and it's all based on this verse here that they're wrongly interpreted because the interpretation of it is, is is when they went into the land of Canaan part of a fertility ritual the Canaanites would have would they would cook a young goat in its mother's milk so the reason for not doing it was so you would not be associated with the idols and the pagan worship of the Canaanites. The Pharisees have turned it into something else. 
Well, we don't mix meat with the dairy, and still people do this today. This gives you an idea of what it was like with the Pharisees and the pressure that the people were under to try and follow because all they constantly did was sit there and think, have I broken the law, have I broken the commandment, will I get into heaven? Have I broken the law, have I broken the commandment, will I get into heaven? And they just kept repeating that to themselves because the Pharisees were the ones that had decided Listen, these are the laws, these are the commandments. We've added a few layers on to protect you, to make sure that, that everybody's okay. But actually they haven't. It's just a burden that they've added to the people because none of them could keep the law anyway and none of them were considered righteous before God anyway because no, nobody could exceed the righteousness. And so here Jesus is coming and he counters this and he said, Listen, I'm not here to tell you the law should be abolished. He tells all those who are listening that his intention is not to discard the law. Uh, and you see what happens is this is coming and he's trying to explain it. He wants to remove the burden, uh, not of the written law, which is the commandments and the stuff that we have, which is good and ethical and moral for all of us. So we still no upgrade on the Ten Commandments, is there? We know he's come up with a better one and said, let's get rid of the ten. Let's do seven instead. You know, nobody's come up with that idea. But some of the other stuff that is in there, it's like, that's not for. We're set free from that. And there's a message that Jesus has here. There's a key point to understanding scripture. Everything in the Jewish scriptures that we, they would call the law and the prophets that we call the Old Testament, it points forward just to one person. His name is Jesus, the arrival of him, the life of him, the death of him, and the resurrection of him. So we come, and we come really to the next point, because uh, th this is, with our time here, I want to go off to a, just a side point, really. Because Jesus talks about something very important. He talks about removing anything from scripture. And this is a real relevant issue in our world today. Uh, and the doctrine itself is called the inerrancy of scripture. Which is simply this, when we take the Bible, how much of it is error? How much of it relates to today? How, how much of it do we really need to take hold of today? So we would take the Bible and we know there are people, and we know there are uh, people that we see on the news, there are people that we see on media, and they would turn around and say, those verses don't really apply today. They're not really important for what we say. Listen, Jesus makes it clear what we're to remove from Scripture. He says nothing. And you see, if you go the other way, which is, you know what, there's some of this that just is not, you know, relevant for today. Where do you draw the line? Where do you stop and say, well, it's this, but not that? Or this part of scripture is relevant, but this part of scripture isn't relevant. This is what the problem you'll have, and uh, I'm not going to draw in my Bible, because this is very precious to me. A Bible that is falling apart is usually read by somebody who isn't. So, I start my Bible and I read Genesis, the first 11 chapters. Really? Talking snakes? Think, you know what, let's take the black marker, because to be honest with you, I live in a world now where we're not really going to believe that, are we? Do you know what I mean? Talking snakes, people live until they're over 800 years old. Let's take the black... I work my way through the Bible. Abraham and Sarah, they were how old? How old? No, I think I need to take the marker. That'll do there. So we're now working our way to about the middle of Genesis and things like that. Well, let's leave Genesis there. Let's work our way through the rest of the Old Testament and stuff. We'll come to the book of Jonah. A fish swallowed a man. Really? No. I think we could take that and knock that out of the Bible. Do you know what I mean? Right, here we go, let's go. Well, let's, let's look at the Old, because maybe that in the Old Testament is just myth. We could look at it and say it's just myth, it's legend. And if people want to believe that, then believe that. So let's move into the New Testament. The man called Jesus, he did some miracles. You know, he, he turned water into wine. Well, that's not a bad miracle, to be fair, is it? But he feeds 5,000, then he feeds 4,000. Miracles, really? I've not witnessed that today. I don't know. We'll scrub those. Forget that. Revelation. Oh, we're here now. Listen, I've watched Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and Game of Thrones. I've seen the flying dragons. That's all they're writing about in there. Let's scrub Revelation out of it as well. 
He said, so we've got through the Bible here, and we've a good bit scrubbed out. So next will be maybe some of the stuff that tells me some of the things that I'm not supposed to do. I don't really like being told what to do, to be honest with you. Maybe what I need to do is cross that out as well. You know what I mean? I'm all for the love stuff. Of course we are. Do you know what I mean? Love God, love others and stuff. But see all of this stuff, you know, repentant. Oh, no way. Repentant, no. We'll, we'll cross that out as well. And what happens when you do that is you are left with very little of what the Bible actually says, teaches. And if you do not accept scripture fully, where do you draw the line? This is the problem today. See, when people come and say, well, it's marriage, you know, we live in a culture whereby, listen, it doesn't matter that the church believes we're man or woman. If you love each other, you, you, you can marry anybody. That's all that matters. That's a culture we live in. The Bible can't speak about that. If we say anything about that, it's hate speech. He's a hateful, awful fella down there telling us I can't marry the person I love. And so we cross that bit out as well. And so what happens with the scripture that we read and, and that we look at it and we take out the bits that we don't like and we're left with very little to live and base and practice our life, our doctrine and our teaching on. I tell you now, we have to accept it fully. The challenge to the church in the age that we live in is to say this is the word of God. It is not the word of man. It is not some ideas that people came with a couple of thousand years ago. They put a collection of writings together. They attributed it to the big fellow in the sky and said, you know what, we can change this as we go along. The truth of it is this. And John Bart said this, and I think it's so true. The Bible is not man's word about God, but God's word about man. And the truth of it is this, and Jesus, almost, he opens this up here when he says there's nothing to be removed. He says actually the heart of the scripture, the teaching of the scripture, is this is God's perfect, inspired, ordained word. He said and that's the word that we live by. Now, are there difficult passages in it? Absolutely. Is there difficult teaching in it? Absolutely. Does it contradict what culture says today? Absolutely. Is it wrong? No. Is it wrong? No. And Jesus comes here and he says this. And, and just by going away of a side issue, and this is important, and we could, we could skim over this. We could simply sail past it and say it's not important to address. But I think it is important to address because we have to look at this. Is, are there any errors in the Bible that make it that we shouldn't believe it and we shouldn't trust it? For four quick reasons. The first one is this, is the claims that the Bible makes. Psalm 12 verse 6 says, The words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. These claims of purity and perfection are absolute statements. They're not suggested statements. And the danger is that we must not turn this book into a set of suggestions if we would like to follow it. It says it is a book of obedience that we are supposed to follow. And so therefore, where we may struggle with some of the stuff uh, where it's based on culture today, the issue is ours. The issue is not the perfect word of God. And I know that might affect some people or upset some people and that, but that's a reality of what the church must preach. He said it's the perfect, pure word of God. That scripture's no good if most of it is true, or it's nearly perfect. It's, that's no good to anybody. How is that any good to anybody? It has to be a hundred percent true. It has to be right. And the Bible stands and falls as a whole, which is the second point. See, if you were to read a newspaper uh, and you discovered that uh, it errors, but they they put a disclaimer in it and said, "Listen, read the whole newspaper." But all the stories on page five, they're, they're all in error. Would you be able to trust the whole newspaper? No, of course you wouldn't. You'd be looking, well, what else is in error? What else is a mistake? The Bible simply stands or falls as a whole. Uh, and we shouldn't be afraid to declare that or take hold of that, the culture that we live in. 
If it is inaccurate when it speaks of one subject, it's inaccurate when it speaks of all subjects. So we've got to look at it and say it's either trustworthy or it isn't. The Bible is a reflection of its author. All books are. The Bible was written by God himself as he worked through human authors in a process called inspiration. The God who created the universe is well able to put a book together. He says, we've all read the quote of how many authors that there are writing all these books that all came together. Uh, and it flows seamlessly and that. And you see, the issue is not simply does the Bible have a mistake. The issue is, does God make a mistake? It, it, does God, he's got a fault anyway, you see. If the Bible contains factual errors, then God is not omniscient and he's capable of making errors himself. So he's written something in here that was relevant for when it was written, but it's not relevant for us today. Well, that's a mistake, isn't it? It says the Bible itself stands a test of time. There's a reason that it's said and described in Peter, the word of the Lord is eternal, that it lasts forever. If the Bible contains, as I've said, that misinformation, then God is not truthful and could be declared as a liar because it's misinformation, it's not true. If the Bible contains contradictions, then God is the author of confusion. I mean, just look at the Gospels themselves. Four men writing four stories about all the same uh, incidents, about all the same men. Man, sorry, man. Jesus Christ. Are there any contradictions? Is there anything that you could read and say, well, he says that, but he says that. Does that really work altogether? Well, no. I says, we look at all that stuff and say, there's no contradictions there. Four people, right? I mean, it would have been easier just to get one and just say, this is the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and just put it all together and then simply say, but they, right, they don't do that. They say, we're not looking for contradictions. We stand the test of time. It's presented as evidence. And they all say the same things, but they might just say it a different way. Or they might add something that another writer doesn't put in, but it doesn't contradict anything. You see, the final thing is this, is the Bible judges us, not vice versa. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrows, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. That is still relevant today. That's not a verse that was written for 2,000 years ago because people struggled with the issues of the heart. That's a verse written for 2022 because people still struggle with the issues of the heart. That's what makes it eternal. Notice the relationship between the heart and the word. The word examines the heart. It tells us what we're really like. You see, to discount parts of the word for any reason is to reverse this process. We become the examiners. We read something and say, instead of allowing it to speak to us, we look at it and simply say, I don't like that bit. I don't like what it says. I'm not going to read it. It's not relevant for where we are today. And the truth of it is, it is because it still does the same job today. You see, the Bible's message must be taken as a whole. It's not a mixture of doctrine that we are free to select from. Those of us of a certain age will remember Woolworths. And you can remember going down and the first thing they had at the front was the pick and mix, do you remember? Yeah, some of you older, you know. For you younger ones, you just have to go with us here, okay? And Woolworths was great because you could pick all the sweets that you like. You didn't have to pick the stinking coconut, whatever they were, you know, those ones. You could pick the bits that you like. You could put them in the bag and it didn't matter what you had. It was your choice. You didn't want the rotten lemon sherbets. You didn't have to get them. You could get what you wanted. I'm afraid that example is a clear example of the major problem there is with the church today. We have become pick and mix. 
we have taken the bits that we like and say, I love those bits. Those are the bits I want in my bag as I fill up. But see all this other stuff where I don't have to choose it. He says, I'm not taking it. The Bible is not about pick and mix and taking the bits that you like. It's about taking it as a whole. We are not free to select just the bits that we like. And though this has taken us off a little bit here from what Jesus says in Matthew, it's important for us uh, to say, and the final point is this, because my time is near gone, is the Bible is our only rule for faith and practice. See, if it's not reliable, then what do we base our beliefs on? Not worship songs. Any good worship song comes out of scripture. Uh, it has to. And it doesn't matter whether it's upbeat, flashing lights, people dancing across the platform, or a song that you're meditating to. That's not the issue. A good worship song comes out of scripture, but we don't take our beliefs and our doctrine and our theology from that. And, and people don't give me the quote that people often do, which is, oh, it's all the old hymns and stuff. That's not true. Uh, listen, the hymns themselves came from the scripture. We don't substitute that. This is where we get our life and our practice from. There's not a podcast or a book, or a YouTube video, or anything else that we can substitute for the Word of God that teaches us the life and practice of what it means to be a Christian. You see, what we are presented here with is not a rejection of true scholarship. Biblical inerrancy does not mean that we stop using our minds or accept what the Bible says blindly. We are commanded to study the word. And in studying the word, God reveals himself more and more to us. He reveals the truth of the word. Those who search it out in Acts 17 are commended. We recognize there are difficult passages. And Jesus comes to this point here on the Sermon on the Mount. And he's sharing this with the people because they're burdened by the law and all that the scribes and the Pharisees have added on. You see, and almost Jesus is looking and he says, there's almost like there's a time coming. He looks at the people thinking there's a time coming when you will be released from this burden. You are released from this. As Jesus shares that here, but he's, he's, he's helping us understand. And this is a big challenge for us today. Because for each and every one of us, we will have heard what's said this morning, and we make that decision of, it's all, it's all scripture, or it's part scripture, or there's some scripture I've got to deal with and work with in my life. We're all challenged by that. So I think Jesus is saying, as he to be the church that God has called us to be, he says, we are going forward by saying, there are controversial passages in scripture, we're not avoiding them. There are challenging passages in scripture. We're not avoiding them. We are coming and we are presenting the full argument of the Bible because that's what believers need. That's what they need. They don't need the softly, softly approach, which is let's just pick a mix of things that we like. Let's just give everybody a buzz for a Sunday and, and just give, make them feel good as they come to church. So when they leave, they feel good. It gets them through the next week. We don't want to do that here. We want to do and build the truth of the word into people's lives so when the difficult times come, they are standing on not what they feel, but what they know through the truth of scripture. That's what we're doing. We're making it clear from the front. We said that's what we want to do. The word of God has everything that we need as believers. All the tools, all the resources, all the power, all the strength, everything that we need as believers. My time is gone. I'm going to invite the worship team uh, to, to come up. And we'll continue on with this next time as we look at the righteousness that is spoken of by Jesus here. Let us pray. Father, we thank you today. Father, your word presents a challenge to us. Your son presented it in the words that he spoke. You talked about the books in the Old Testament, the commandments of the law. Father, what a challenging question for us today as a church in 2022. So we're presented with the truth of the Bible. And Father, we don't want to make the culture that we live in fit to the word of God. We want to make the word of God fit and stand out in the culture that we live in. 
because it's still the message of truth and it still changes people's lives. You are the author of it. And Father, we still in this church believe in the power of the Word of God to change people's lives. And Father, we thank you for your Word. You who put the universe together. You hold the stars in the sky. You will hold our lives in your hands. You have given this uh, amazing book to us as a guidebook, as a book of strength and encouragement, as a book of challenge and discipline, a book that helps us in every situation that we face. And we thank you for that today. Pay your blessing upon the church, Father God. In Jesus' name, Amen.
just thank you for this time spent in your presence today. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this law and your scripture that is given to us. We thank you for your scripture and your word that guides us daily. God, help us to be people that are in the word daily. Help us to be people that are following your word and your law, not just listening to these music sites and YouTube and podcasts and all these different things, but getting into your word daily. God, help us with that this week as we as we walk with you and as we talk with you. God, we pray you would be with us as we go our separate ways and bring us back safely this evening. Amen.